Welcome to Wired for Impact, home of creators, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are wired to make a difference. If you're here, it's because you have three things. Number one, a unique gift or calling. Number two, you care about people. And number three, you have a deep desire to contribute. When you add those three things up, you are in the game of creating impact. You are what I call an impact player. My name is Peter King. I'm the host of the program. And in each episode, I have conversations with world-class impact players who have aligned their unique gifts with the contribution they've made in the world to create massive impact. So listen into these conversations and allow them to inspire you to overcome the obstacles in your way and to fulfill your potential. I'm here with Chris Gronkowski. How are you doing, Chris? I'm good. I'm good, man. I'm a couple hours out from heading to Vegas for Gronk Beach. So uh, NFL <laughs> draft tonight, big draft party the following day. So it's going to be an exciting weekend. That's going to be very exciting. You were telling me about this on our call earlier. For those that don't know what that is, explain a little bit more beyond like, what are you going to be doing? What's the weekend entail? Yeah, so I'll, I'll be flying in. Uh, actually set up a bunch of business meetings in Vegas. Vegas is it's back alive. You know, it's, it's pumping again. It's good to see. I'm excited to check out one of the new resorts, Resorts World. Sounds like an absolutely amazing accomplishment of a hotel. Uh, so doing that, but we have a, a, a six-hour draft party where... Uh, it's all out, man. Everyone's there. There should be half a million people in Vegas for the draft. Wow. And um, they're looking for something to do. The goal is to get a couple of the drafted players in the first round to come to our party as well, get them on stage, show them a good time. And, and hopefully this becomes something that we do every year. The draft keeps getting bigger and bigger. They keep bringing it to new cities. You can't get a better opportunity than Vegas. So if this goes well, we've done Super Bowl parties in the past that were super successful. And I think we could add the yearly draft party as well. That's really smart, actually, to jump out for, as a family. You guys have a, a really cool thing going, obviously, with your brothers, having most of them played in the NFL. And just uh, capitalizing on that brand recognition is pretty smart as a family to do that. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We were approached with the idea from a company that also does some of the stuff for Shaq. Uh, and Shaq's been pretty good at throwing parties as well. And it's done a really good job with the Super Bowl parties. It's been definitely a great connection. People love it. Everyone wants to party with the Gronk, so usually sells out pretty quick as well. Why is that, Chris? <laughs> hey, I guess it all started in Buffalo, New York. I mean, if you live in Buffalo, you kind of figure out really quickly why everyone parties so hard and, and throws each other through tables at the Bills games. You know, that's what we grew up doing and went to college, had a good time. It was kind of always that, that work hard, play hard mentality was we were going to have fun, too. Yeah, it definitely uh, bleeds into everything that you guys do. It's very apparent from your NFL career, but also in the Shark Tank. Uh, for those that don't know, Chris and his brothers um, were on Shark Tank for a product that you're selling called the Ice Shaker, which uh, we're going to get into both of those. But I wanted to ask you first, growing up, there's uh, I've listened to a lot of the, your podcasts the last few days, and that seems to be sort of the 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 go-to question right out of the gate. And I'm like, ah, should I ask this question? But at the same time, it helps, gives us uh, some context to who you are and, and what you're up to with your brothers. What, what was it like growing up with that many sort of alpha males all in the same house? I can only imagine that it's a little crazy. I grew up with five myself. So. Yeah. So, you know, um, and the best way to explain it is yeah, I got some jerseys behind me hanging on the wall right now. Like that just wasn't even possible at our house. Uh, everything was a weapon. Everything got broken. Uh, it, it was insanity. So if there was a picture on the wall, we either got knocked off or it would have been taken off the wall and probably like smashed over one of our heads. So uh, we had a couch and a rocking chair 
And that was it. Like that whole family room had a couch and a rocking chair. And, and that was pretty much all the furniture we had. Just mayhem, uh, five boys competing in everything from, you know, who could eat faster, who could eat more, who could lift more. You know, we made up games in the backyard, in the basement. It was also the house where everyone came over to. So it wasn't just us. It was also our friends. And man, we grew up in the coolest neighborhood. You know, we didn't have fences in New York. You just walk through your neighbor's yard and we just had a bunch of different neighbors that had kids our age as well. So uh, it was just a really cool time and a really cool place to grow up. Kids these days don't realize what they're missing. I, our generation, that's all we did. It was be home by sundown, you know, be, be home by dinner, see ya, go. And you just got lost. That was so fun. We had so much fun doing that. No cell phones. Yep. It, and when it got dark out, that was it. And then, uh, you know, your mom and dad would be calling down to the neighbors like, hey, have you seen Chris? Uh, yeah. Oh, he's not home yet. We can't find him. I mean, they have, had no idea where we were. And then, you know, if it was a little dark out when we got home, we just get yelled at for it. Right. <laughs> exactly. So you played how many seasons in the NFL? Uh, so I played three seasons, went into a fourth season with the Chargers and got hurt in camp and ended up signing an injury settlement and thought I'd come back and never played again. Mm. One of the things that you shared with me on our pre-call that I found f- really fascinating was number one, you guys aren't contractors. You're W-2 employees of the NFL, correct? Correct. Therefore, you're paying taxes. Explain a little bit about the taxes that you have to pay and, and how come you don't like playing in California? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my fourth year, I'm going to San Diego and you know, it was pretty much a 13% pay cut uh, going from at least from a state where there was no state income tax like Texas, where I, where I started my career with the Cowboys. You know, you leave there, you, know, you go to California and you get crushed, but really you're only paying that state income tax in the state that you're playing in for that week. So you do get paid weekly as a player. You get paid per game. If you're not on the roster on a Wednesday, you're actually not going to get paid that day or that week. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you make it past Wednesday, it's like, yes, I'm getting paid this week. But then depending on what state you play in, that's actually where you pay the taxes as well. So if we had an away game when I was with the Cowboys and we played in California, which we did against the Chargers that week, you know, it was a significant pay cut. And you're paying those taxes to the state of California or whatever state you're playing. I don't know why, but everyone thinks for some reason NFL players don't pay taxes. It is quite the opposite. You are maxed out and you're paying. It's, it's a lot. I mean, it's everything you could possibly think of. And then when you go to a state like California, you know, more than 50% of that paycheck is going to taxes. Yeah, I don't think the average person realizes just how quickly that money can go away. There's this, you know, maybe expectation that, oh, you're on the big screen. You're playing on this team that you're going to money problems just aren't your issue anymore. And it's like, no, that that becomes a very it becomes an issue very quickly, especially if your career is the average career, which is what, three to four years tops? Yeah, they actually set your pension at three years because the average is actually less than three years. Hmm. Uh, so most players will will get to about two and a half uh, or two years and they don't get to that third year. So if you don't get to the third year, you walk away with whatever you made and that's it at that point. Uh, there's no other benefits. There's absolutely nothing else there. If you get to three seasons and it's three credited seasons where you're playing in at least three games, for three years, at that point, you do get retirement. You get the pension. You are able to put into 401k throughout your whole career. So if you did that, you know, they're actually going to double match it. Shockingly, some players wouldn't do it. But yeah, my, my rookie year, you know, the max you're allowed to put in, I think, was around $13,000. The NFL would actually put in twenty six, hmm. and, and they would double it. They did their best to help guys save and, and get them ready for the next stage. But most guys just don't think that, you know, that next stage is going to come that quick. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they, a lot of times they just don't save. They think they're going to play forever. That's all they know. And, uh, you know, things change quickly. Yeah, it's one injury away from never playing again. 
That's just something that sometimes no matter how good you are, no matter how much you work for it, you train, you can't control. You know, if a guy falls on you the wrong way, freak accident, freak injury, whatever it is, you might never play another play again. Yeah, that's you're putting a lot on the line, obviously, when you step out there and your family's financial, you know, future, et cetera. Speaking of injuries, I was surprised to learn that you didn't take any type of drugs or any type of substance to help alleviate the 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 pain that goes into that. As I mentioned to you, I had Evan Britton on the program not too long ago, and he was explaining how a lot of players that he knew in his experience were you know, dope it up on some type of something to ease the pain, to actually be able to go out every day and smash heads with guys. But you didn't do that. No. So, I mean, it, it's definitely common for players to take Tordal. I really didn't even know what Tordal was. I actually never personally took it myself. But um, when I first started playing, it was a, it was an injection. Uh, I absolutely hate shots. I've passed out from getting a shot before. So it was like the last thing I wanted to do. Then they did make it available in a pill form. Then made guys start signing off on it as well, saying, "Hey, you know, this is what we're taking." So they got a little more intense with it. But uh, yeah, guys do. I mean, a lot of guys, you're so banged up. I mean, you're pretty much playing hurt, no matter what, no matter who you are. At some point, you know, you're playing through some kind of injury during the season, and you're just trying to recover. So to take an anti-inflammatory like that is going to get them back on the field. They're not going to feel it for. I, I really, it seemed like. Most guys would say it would be all the way up until next Tuesday. And then the Wednesday practice was when it really hit and they really feeling it. So, yeah, I, I never did. Um, you know, I, I just did the best I could to take care of myself. It was a lot of just uh, getting there the next day, getting moving, hot, cold baths, stuff like that as well were crucial. And, uh, man, once once you started moving, that was kind of it. The whole The whole game plan after a game was, you know, you didn't take the day off. You actually went in that next morning. And it was all about just recovering. So your day off was actually Tuesday, play Sunday, Monday, you go into the facility. It was all about watching film and then recovering. And then on Tuesday, you'd actually take your day off. Recovering, meaning the hot cold baths and stretching and massage work and stuff like that? For sure. Even a workout. We'd go in, we'd run a little bit because, man, you're so stiff. You're so locked up that you got to get moving. Uh, so we'd run a little bit. Usually it was something like, you know, maybe like a nine minute tempo run or something like that usually a, a slight workout as well. The workouts during the season weren't about trying to gain strength, but you gained your strength over the off season. You trained extremely hard, built as much muscle up as you can, endurance strength during the season. It was just trying to keep it, you know, how do, how do I keep this? What's the really the least amount of work I can do to keep my strength and not get sore. I mean, the last thing you wanted to do was crank out a bunch of squats or something like that and, and be sore on a Wednesday practice. So uh, it was just all about maintaining and recovering on a Monday. Yeah. Knowing what you know now, would you go back and do it again? Would you aspire to be in the NFL? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people ask me if I let my kids play. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, it was it's by far the hardest job you'll ever have, the most stressful job you'll ever have. But it also makes you who you are. It also pays really well. I was the, the lowest paid player in the entire NFL, but you know, it was still an amazing start for me. I mean... Three years, my rookie contract was for 1.2 million. You know, you take all the taxes, all that out, cost of living. Yeah, I might have left, definitely not as a millionaire. You know, maybe six hundred thousand dollars in my bank account, but that's huge. When you're 25 years old, 26 years old, if you play it the right way, that much money can really propel you into anything. And what I did was I, I put it right into a business. Let's transition into that. If you could walk us through when you got the injury and it dawned on you that this might be the end of this chapter, walk us through what happened there and where your thought was at that point. 
Yeah. I mean, going into it, I was an undrafted free agent, you know, rookie. So I really had one shot, one chance, one opportunity to even make a team. I uh, never thought I'd actually even get to the NFL. I always was told it's a one in a million shot. I was the shortest, smallest, probably the slowest in my family. I had two brothers that were way better athletes than me. So I'm like, man, one of them ended up going in the seventh round and the other one got drafted in the second round. But yeah, I didn't even think it was in the cards for me. So to get that opportunity was huge. I also knew when I got that opportunity that it wasn't going to last long. So mm-hmm. it was always like, well, what's coming next? Because mm-hmm. you know, this isn't going to be a 10-year career. And I, and I kind of knew that right at the beginning. So yeah, when I got hurt, I was kind of already getting to that point. So my first contract ended, I signed a new contract as a one-year deal with the Chargers going into it. You know, there was only a few teams even calling and asking each year, you actually make more money. You're slated to make more, even though I was making minimum, uh, you still get more per year. So by that time, between my rookie year and my fourth season, I was making more than double. I was my first year. Uh, so it becomes more and more competitive as well. So um, probably would have made that team ended up getting hurt high ankle sprain, got released. What they have to do is it's a job. If you get hurt, they have to pay you out and then pay for your recovery and all that as well. But they have to pay you out based on how many games they think you're going to be hurt for. So I got, you know, three full game checks, a couple uh, preseason checks as well. They told me it'd be about a month before I came back from it. I ended up rehabbing for about three months before I came back. So at that point, went to a tryout in Miami, uh, third step in, ruptured my hamstring, and it was either have surgery, reattach it, or it was, hey, let's move on to the next part of my life. For me, I always say it was kind of a blessing in disguise. You know, it's so hard to walk away from that. It's so hard. You know, that's your identity your whole life. But so many guys struggle and they try to come back. They try to come back. They play different leagues. And it just ends up being this journey that wastes, you know, a year or two years, maybe three years of their life when they could have started on to the next chapter and really got ahead. So for me, I had to walk away. There was really no option at that point. No one was calling. The injury was either surgery or just let it heal down and live the rest of your life and, and still be able to do everything, just not at a level that you have to for the NFL. So I moved on. I was lucky enough that my wife had already started a business. The business was doing really well between my transition from my third year and signing that new fourth year contract. I was actually working for my wife and the business was taken off. So I was lucky enough to fall right into that. And then use that business to really occupy my time because one of the hardest things is just not knowing what to do and being bored. And I think that drives a lot of guys crazy because as an athlete, everything's so regimented. You had the schedule your whole life, be here at 5 a.m., practice starts at 6, you know, breakfast is at whatever it is. You know, it was all aligned every single day. I mean, we had an itinerary every day we walked in. And once you have nothing to do, mm. it becomes a massive problem. Yeah, every minute of your day scheduled to all of a sudden see ya and you have your whole day open, your whole year open. What am I going to do with my life? I, I, I see people go through. My mother went through that. Obviously, she didn't play professional sports, but she was a mother. Like her identity yeah. was wrapped up in a, in a mother. And with five kids, it was go, 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 go for, you know, decade plus, two decades, essentially. And then all of a sudden the last kids graduates and it's like, who am I? I don't know who I am anymore. So it's like that identification with one specific thing for your whole life. So that's, I can see how that would be a difficult transition. Did you have ice shaker already in the back of your mind or when did that, when was that born? No. So ice shaker had no clue, um, had no clue it was coming, had no clue. I'd be an entrepreneur, had no idea that this whole business with my wife was going to start either. But for her, it was three different teams, three different cities. She had to apply for new jobs by that third job or that third city. She was like, I'm going to find a way to work from home. So she started a website and Etsy shop and it, it took off. So 
jumped into that. Never thought I'd be doing custom engraved wedding gifts. <laughs> you know, never <laughs> thought I'd be doing, you know, Mother's Day and Father's Day custom items. But um, it was crushing. It was absolutely crushing. I was actually making more money doing that than playing in the NFL. So that's so great. Uh, just just absolutely took off. We we're doing it from our house. We were that house on the on the block where there was packages just stacked up over like the the entire front porch of our house, and everyone would come by and point at our house and be like, "What are these guys doing?" <laughs> Cops actually came by at one point and were like, I, "I don't get it. Like, what are you guys doing over here?" And we're like, "Man, we're just we have an online business." And they're like, "Oh, okay. Like, people keep calling the cops on you, and we don't understand why." But they, you know, <laughs> people were just curious. They didn't know what we were doing. It crushed, man. Absolutely crushed. Didn't really need to do anything else, but I realized after five years of doing it that I didn't love doing it. Like it wasn't my passion. Mm-hmm. Made a lot of money. It, it was great, but I didn't tell anyone what I was doing. You know, when someone asked me, a former teammate asked me, you know, what I was doing now, just say, "Hey, man, I'm kind of doing my own thing. Kind of got this this side hustle kind of thing I'm doing." But I didn't post about it on social media. Didn't tell anyone. Kind of realized that, you know, this isn't who I am. You know, I I, I grew up lifting weights, playing sports you know, health and fitness was everything. My dad started a fitness company. I was, I was delivering treadmills for him. And that was kind of who I was. So I wanted to find a way to get back into it. And and I stumbled upon that idea about five years after I left the NFL with the shaker bottle. So walk us through what happened there and how did that lead you to shark tank? Yeah. So it was about five years after my NFL career. Uh, I was still going to the gym probably almost seven days a week at that point. And still do today. Just love the gym, love being active. It's kind of my my stress relief. And I would go to work. I would come back home. I'd grab a, a plastic shaker bottle. I'd fill it up with ice or pre-workout or BCAs, whatever it was, and head to the gym. And it was just a super hot day here in Dallas. By the time I got there, the cup holder in my car you know, was just full of water from the sweat on the bottle. It's getting on my shirt. And I was actually making like little sweat rings on the floor at the gym in between sets. And it finally hit me. Like there's so many insulated bottles out there why doesn't anyone have one that I could actually bring to the gym and mix up powders? And uh, you went home that day figuring, you know, this is a great idea. I've thought of other great ideas and I jump online and of course someone's already done it Mm -hmm. and uh, I just hadn't seen it yet. So figure I'd just jump online, grab one, grab an insulated bottle that was easy to fill, would actually be able to blend powders up. And there's just nothing out there at the time. That was it. You know, that was that opportunity that I saw to to do it myself and to get back into the sports and fitness world. Very cool. Is there a patent on it? Originally there was not. Uh, made a very basic cup. I, I basically took an insulated cup and I threw a shaker top on it. And that was the very first product. I ended up naming it ice shaker because there was no way to actually blend up the powders. So I, mm-hmm. I, I would tell people they had to put ice in it and let the ice cubes kind of blend it. Uh-huh. It was just such a, such a basic, simple uh, <laughs> cup. So that's where the name actually came from. And uh, you know, we brought in 10,000 units and they they started selling like crazy. So that was the start of it. Absolutely no patents. Nothing could be patented because it was a simple shaker bottle top and a, just a basic bottle. And then as we, we got on the Shark Tank and as we created uh, newer, better products, we now have a bunch of different patented designs. I'm curious. And for those that are entrepreneurs and watch the show, I'm sure they uh, always wonder too, the behind the scenes stuff. So when you pitch the idea, do you just email it in? How do you get on their radar in the first place? Yeah. So a lot of it, it is it, a lot of it does come recommendations. Sometimes people recommend you. What happened here was it actually came through the NFL, my NFL agent. 2012 sent out an email blast to all of these current players just saying ABC's looking for any current or former NFL players that might want to pitch an idea on the show. I'm sure you've seen other NFL players on there. Antonio Brown was on there at one point. It's ABC Shark Tank. They're looking to to 
build a bigger audience. And to do so, they're trying to bring in athletes and other celebrities to grow their audience. So that's what they were doing. 2012, I watched the show all the time. I was a huge fan. And you know, I was in the middle of my NFL career. I had absolutely nothing to pitch them. But I thought that maybe one day I'm going to come back and I'm going to have this great idea and I'm going to pitch it to them. That great idea came about four and a half years later. I wrote back to that email and that was it. They just asked for a video submission. I sent in the video submission. And at that point, it was kind of like, hey, yes or no, You know, if you're going to go to the next steps. They said they loved it. And it was kind of just a couple months of just back and forth on due diligence and everything you could possibly think of and a ton of paperwork to finally get to the hotel and then get to the airing or, or to the recording. So they're verifying that you're incorporated, that you have some initial sales, that kind of thing, or was it everything you possibly think of background yeah. checks? Uh, they, anything that was ever on your record, they're going to find, um, you know, simple stuff. Like I actually, I had a tax lien on me from uh, the state of Indianapolis. So going back to the fun part of filing in every state, I actually e-filed it. My CPA e-filed it for whatever reason. They said they didn't get it. So it was on my report. My accountant actually had to call over there for almost a week to finally get through it and then get it cleared off of our account. But uh, super frustrating process, but they were going to make sure that everything was ex- extremely clean. You know, they don't want to bring someone on there. It's a family station as well. And if you have something on there that they don't know about, that could become an issue later on down the road, you know, that's a huge problem for them. So Interesting. Uh, they're going to check everything they possibly can about the business, about you, your background, everything that you're saying in the pitch. And, uh, and they want to make sure that they're bringing up someone that's they want to be on their show. Now, I've always been curious because every pitch sort of feels the same that, that, you know, people have a story, they have an intro, they have a, you know, this yep. is the problem that we're solving, et cetera. Did they coach you on how to give a pitch to the Sharks? So they, they definitely want a good show they're going to assign a producer to you and they're going to make sure that it's decent. You know, they don't want every single person going up there and just garbage because that naturally happens. People do go up there, even though they do prepare and they do have a great idea and they have a great business. They just freeze mm-hmm. and they freeze in the moment. They get super nervous. Sometimes they don't even say anything. They literally just freeze and don't talk at all. Yeah. And you need that every once in a while, but you don't want that every time you want to have a good show. You want cool ideas. You want, really cool businesses that are doing well, because that's what draws people. You know, when someone goes on there and says, Hey, I'm looking for $10 million. You're like, Oh, well, dang, this little business or this is, is doing that. And you know, it gets people super excited when they see big numbers. So the last thing they want is everyone to just go up there and, and not perform well. So yeah, absolutely. They, they do help you out. They do help you with the pitch a little bit as well. You know, the flip cup thing was definitely talked about a lot because it's considered a drinking game. So yeah, it took a lot of convincing to the producers that we use this game as a way to rehydrate after football games and we didn't use it to party with. So um, <laughs> for those that haven't seen it, you had all your brothers rally behind you and come out and support you on the show. And then you guys did a drinking game with the sharks to loosen things up a little bit and to talk about how you rehydrated. Um, yeah. Hydra- hydration game. <laughs> the hydration game. Exactly. Whose idea was that by the way? It was 100% mine. They kept throwing ideas at us and and they were trying to really rally off of our athletic background. And when you take five brothers and, and you know, three of us, at least three of us were either still playing or just coming out of a, a pro career. And then you go against five sharks you know, that are older and obviously not even close to the level that we're at. It wasn't going to be entertaining. So, you know, as many ideas that they thought about with fitness or athletics, none of them made sense. So 
it finally came to the point where I was like, Hey, I was just playing this game over the weekend. It's always, it's always a, what is one of the funnest games. It gets everybody involved. Anybody can play it. Anyone can win in it. And, um, and it's actually fun to watch too. Like you could sit there and watch people play and mm -hmm. still be entertained. So I uh, threw that idea out there and I was like, this is a perfect idea. Yo, <laughs> it's a cup and ice shakers, a cup. Like it, it all makes sense. Right. It didn't really make sense, but at the end of the day, it was, it ended up being the perfect idea because it did exactly what I wanted, which was loosen up that room. It would kind of get everyone introduced. It was super entertaining as well. You know, Mark didn't get a chance to go, but he was actually uh, really good at the game. And he just started flipping by himself afterwards. And after that, like the tough questions really never came. And you know, mm -hmm. we had Mr. Wonderful up there. I'm ready to just absolutely get roasted by him. And the whole patent question that you asked earlier, we didn't have that. So mm -hmm. I was just sitting there waiting for it. You know, what's stopping me from making the Mr. Wonderful shaker? You know, just, just ready to get absolutely <laughs> drilled by him. And it never came. And I think it never came just because of the vibe in the room. Everyone's kind of having a good time. They realized that, you know, we were going to work hard, but also put in that work. And they saw some potential more in us than I, I think, um, than just the product itself. I was going to say, that's what was so cool about having all your brothers there, because regardless of the product, you had team Gronk to help support and elevate this idea. And of course you guys all have your subsequent followers that you don't even really need a patent. Well, I'm curious, what would you have said if Mr. Wonderful said, what's stopping me from going and making the Mr. Wonderful shaker? <laughs> that, that was pretty much it, man. I mean, everyone knows that's done it, how hard it is to build anything from the ground up. Yeah. You know, so first the market is huge. Having the name behind it as well was absolutely huge as well. And the whole sports background was big too. And then just the passion too. I think passion is absolutely massive in a business. You, know, you have to absolutely love it and live that lifestyle as well. And that's what I was doing. And I still do today. And that's why I also think it's been successful is because, you know, I live that lifestyle. I am not going to give up on it. I'm going to push through uh, whatever it takes to get it done. And that's what happened. So yeah, he could make a Mr. Wonderful shaker, but I could tell you he's not hitting the gym every day like we are and playing sports and putting that time in. So no one's going to rally behind it like they did with, with Ice Shaker. There's no Mr. Wonderful beach party in Vegas. We'll just, we'll just Absolutely, say that. Yeah. <laughs> They're not supplying uh, shaker cups that were actually, you know, they turn into martini shakers on the weekends too. So there'll be uh, yeah. a bunch floating around the party. Where do you fall in line again with your brothers in, in terms uh, of order? I'm the middle of five. Okay. Do you ever have, I'm just curious, I have five in my family too. There's five of us. I'm second in line. But one of the things that my brother, the middle of our family talked about is if you're the oldest, you have identity in being the oldest. If you're the youngest, you're the baby. So you have all of that. Everybody sort of finds an identity. Did you struggle with that at all? I'm curious. Man, I always kind of felt like the underdog, you know, smallest. I was a little fat one too, when I was, when I was younger. <laughs> so they'd always make fun of me. So it was all about just being the strongest, being the best that I could. So that's kind of really what I rallied on. Uh, set all the high school records for strength, you know, stuff like that, where I was going to do whatever I can and put the hard work in. And, and that's kind of what my identity has been. Did you go to the same high school that your brothers did? Yeah, for sure. Yep. So yeah. you have, you have the record over them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I let them know about it all the time. <laughs> I bet you did. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, okay. So going back to Shark Tank, so you did a deal with Cuban, right? Or was there another shark involved too? Yeah, or? for sure. We actually ended up closing with uh, Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez on the show. Oh, very cool. And then at what level of involvement do they have after that? Do you get to, do you get their cell numbers or do they hand you off to other people or how does that work? Yeah. So it depends on the partner. Mark's been doing it for you know, 10 plus seasons. We were actually season nine with them. So I guess eight plus with at the time. 
that I joined in. He has a full team built out. He has Mark Cuban companies. He has over 10 employees in that that are just going to help you out. So if you have any questions, you reach out to them. I had an advisor assigned to, assigned to me and I talk to him pretty much every week, sometimes a couple of times a week if I need to. And at that point, it's hey, if you need to talk to Mark, awesome. You know, here's his email. I don't think I have his cell phone, but if I email him and I ask him for it, I'm sure I'll get it. If I ask for a meeting, I don't think it'll be an issue, but I only bring up stuff to him when, you know, it's a huge decision that I think he needs to be involved in. You know, at the end of the day, he invested $75,000 into our company. He's a multi-billionaire. So I went into it knowing that, you know, I'm not going to have a lot of one-on-one time with Mark. Uh, if I really need it, we're going into, I think, year five with him now. So business is doing really well. We're hitting all of our goals. He's been paid back so many times that I think he'll take my call now. I don't think Mm -hmm. it's an issue at this point, but at the end of the day, the person that knows the business the best is me. You know, he's not doing it on a daily basis. This isn't what he does for a living. So for me to go ask him a question about something that we're currently doing, he's not going to know the answer to it, or he's not going to know the industry as well as I do, because I live it every single day. I live, breathe this all day, every day. What's really good is the networking is awesome. Uh, you know, I can call and talk to my advisor and, and, and ask for, you know, someone else in the portfolio that might be doing really well with something that I'm interested in. So mm. I've done it multiple times, you know, SMS when it first came out, I didn't know about it. I didn't know if it was a good idea. I almost felt like it was an invasion of privacy for someone to be texting someone on their phone. Uh, it was as easy as hitting up my advisor, asking about it, them connecting me with you know, the CMO of another company in the portfolio that was crushing with it. And all of a sudden, you know, we're set up, we're doing really well with it. We're growing this massive following and we're one of the best at email and SMS in the whole portfolio now. So uh, those are the the huge benefits of working with them. And then also just having the Mark Cuban name behind you is huge. You know, it opens up a lot of doors. It automatically makes you legit. You know, this is a Mark Cuban backed company. We're going to get in the doors. We're going to get the meetings that most people probably wouldn't get. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about the growth of the business. What have been some of your milestones in the growth of the business? Yeah, for sure. When we first got on Shark Tank, we were only six months into the company. We had about 80,000 in sales. We were profitable. We were profitable from day one. But um, after Shark Tank, the next 12 months, we did about 3 million in wow. sales. So just, wow. just massive jump from really from a, a side hustle out of the upstairs of my house to a, a full-time business overnight. So Shark Tank's a beast. It's exactly what everyone says it is. The exposure is huge to get offers from all five sharks. Really just solidified that, you know, this is a product people should buy and uh, it took us to that next level. So since then, um, we have then continued to grow. Our goal was 30% every year. We're still hitting that 30% every year at this point. And that's really the the game plan with the company. If we can continue to just grow 30%, We'll just keep getting to that next level. And at some point, you know, maybe we'll get bought out. Maybe I'll just keep pushing into new markets. Not really sure what we're going to end up doing, but just keep growing. And mm-hmm. something's, something's good is going to happen. Yeah. Where do you manufacture the cups? Uh, all overseas in China. Okay. How has the global supply chain issues affected the business? It's been tough. Prices have went way up. We've tried to source other places to make this type of product. It's not being made anywhere else. We're in the same factories as a Yeti, a Hydro Flask, all the big name products, we're, we're all coming out of the same factories in the same area. So, you know, even with the increases in shipping, the container prices going through the roof, kitchen grade stainless steel significantly increasing, lead times just, just through the roof. Yeah, you know, it's still been good for us because 
we have product and we bring it in early and we, we forecast it pretty well. And then when it does run out, people right now are, they're willing to wait. You know, they realize that there's an issue. We don't really get orders canceled. People are just completely understanding what's going on with the world. And it's, it's been pretty good for us so far. And we actually do a little bit better than I think the other companies. So I think we're snagging a lot of customers from other people because they just can't supply it like we can. Mm. That, to me, it just goes back to the power of brand recognition. Team Gronkowski having that whole energy behind you. And of course, the association with Cuban and all that. It's fascinating to me how that, um, those are intangibles, I think, that a lot of entrepreneurs sometimes forget about. You know, they're thinking about product innovation or market distribution, which obviously those things are huge, but just having the name Gronkowski and, and putting that out there. And then, of course, having all your brothers come in and play drinking games with the Sharks. You know, there's a lot to leverage there, which is great. I'm curious how much of your football career has blended into entrepreneurship. Like what kind of qualities um, does it take to be a professional athlete and how have those lended itself to being a successful entrepreneur? Yeah, yeah. I would say it's just as hard. It's just a different type of hard. As a football player, you're waking up early, you're getting there. It's physically and mentally demanding, but more physical. But you learn how to you know, really grind it out. You, you learn how to put in that hard work. You learn how to keep going through it, you know, even though you're hurt, even though you're tired, and you just keep going all out and, and doing everything you can to win. Entrepreneurship is very similar. Yeah, it's those long hours. It never stops. You're doing everything you can to win. And then if you do it right, it actually becomes very similar to a football team. If you do it the right way and you build it the right way, it just becomes this team atmosphere. You can't win and you can't get to that next level. You can't scale up unless you start building a team. Hmm. Fortunately, it took me about four years to finally realize how to do it the right way. And once I did, I, I took those same principles that I learned in the NFL. You know, there's a head coach, there's assistant coaches, there's players. You can't be a player and a coach. It doesn't happen. And there's a reason for it. The coaches aren't in the scouting room. You know, they're not part of the scouting department. They're not part of the front office. But everyone has their specific role. And that's how it should be in business as well. Uh, as an entrepreneur, I was just putting way too much on my own plate. And it was just stopping us from growing. You know, it was definitely a huge mistake that I was really doing because it, it was kind of my own ego. It was kind of like, hey, this is my baby. I can do everything myself. I can do it better than everyone else. Why would I bring someone in to do this? Really, at the end of the day, you can't do everything. And if you try, you're not going to do it to your best ability because there's not enough time in the day. Finally realized, and, and probably the biggest lesson that I learned from the NFL was that team structure. And then taking that, bringing it right into business because your business should be set up the same way as an NFL team. You had mentioned on some of your podcasts that you were so stressed at some points that you were grinding your teeth at night. Is that when you were taking on too much? Did that coincide with the teeth grinding or? Oh, so yeah, just... that, the, the teeth grinding was during my NFL career. Oh, gotcha. Uh, okay. Yeah, it, it was. And I get asked that question all the time. Like, Hey, <laughs> It would be frustrating because people would be like, hey, it must have been really nice playing a game for a living. And uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, it is a game on Sundays, but you know, the rest of the week, it's a job. And it was by far the most stressful job you could possibly have. But if you came a minute late, you got fined $1,000 or you got cut. If you were one pound overweight, you got fined $500 per pound per day that you were overweight. Everything's filmed and then watched and recorded and you know replayed and it's not even just your own locker room or your own team that's seeing it. It's the whole world that's also seeing it as well. So grinding my teeth was during my NFL career. The day I stopped playing was the day I stopped grinding my teeth. <laughs> so 
Uh, you think there was association there? (laughs) Absolutely. So yeah, that all stopped. All stopped the second my NFL career was over. Mm. Uh, Entrepreneurship. There might be nights where I'm where I'm still doing it. Yeah, Uh, it's not every night. That's for sure. But yeah, I mean the stress levels definitely get to that point. A lot of it, I think, was self inflicted just from not knowing the right way to set up the business Mm -hmm. uh, and putting the right structures in place and, and and a team in place. Uh, but you learn, you grow, you know, some things you do at the beginning, you have to do because the money's not there, the sales aren't there and you got to just kind of figure things out. But once you do, and once you realize that, you know, you have the money to to pay for it, the best thing you could do is go and get good people and build a good Mm. team around you. Mm. How many people do you have in your team? Uh, We're currently, I I think we're currently at 15 with our team here. We have a lot of really cool partnerships. We have different sales reps in different areas as well. We definitely reach a lot more than what it sounds like with just 15 people, but a lot of it's more through partnerships. Well, 15 people to me to sell an ice shaker is you've got a healthy, you've got to have enough sales to support all those people and their families. That's, you know, that's not a small thing in my opinion. That's pretty cool that you were able to have accomplished this at this point. Your wife still has her business, the Etsy business. Yep. Yep. She's still going strong. And how many kids do you have? Going on number four. We got the fourth wow. coming in uh, in about two months, about six weeks, actually. That's great, fantastic! Congratulations on that. I honestly like that. To me, would create stress just because there's so much in your life that needs attention and literal life support from kids to businesses. How have you guys managed that, you and your wife? Oh uh, man, that was the hardest part for me was to um, you know to slow down because. Yeah, I, I didn't mind working, you know, putting that work in was no issue, but you can't work a hundred hours a week and, and then have a family as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the kids first started to come, it was very hard for me to say, Hey, I got to stop working and I got to go feed the baby. That was definitely a challenge for me because as I was feeding them, I was sitting there saying, man, I have so much to do mm-hmm. You know, to sit here for an hour doing nothing would just would drive me insane. Again, it was definitely on me for not building the structure that I needed, not building the team that I needed, putting way too much on my own plate and actually ended up being a benefit for me, you know, because it forced me to do those things. It forced me to then reach out to mentors, my dad, other business owners that were successful and say, Hey, you know, how'd you do this? And it was you know, the same answer every time. Well, you know, how many people are helping you? How are you delegating responsibilities? My answer was, you know, I'm not really. And, you know, my dad would look at me 32 years in business and he's like, how are you answering customer service emails? Like, what are you doing? Like, mm-hmm. You know, there, there's somebody that you have to bring in for that. The CEO of the company, the guy running it shouldn't be answering the customer service if you want to grow. I mean, you can if, you, if you're happy with where you're at. Mm. Uh, but if you want to continue to scale up and get to that next level, it's impossible. With that, with my wife, with the kids, all that, it, it really just became a matter of building that structure, you know, putting the, the right structure in place for the businesses, separating family time from business. You, you figure it out pretty quick once you have a third kid. <laughs> yeah, you almost don't have a choice. I would imagine <clears throat> from what I've seen in my experience when entrepreneurs go through that process of letting go a little bit in you know bringing in a team, delegating out a lot the question that they face often is well what am I really good at? What do I want to do? What did you find in that process for you? Where do you find uh, your place in this whole business now? Yeah, so for me what I find and what I see being the most successful is I'll find kind of an area where I think we can grow, where I think there's opportunity, and then I'll attack it myself first. I'll attack it. I'll figure it out. I'll figure out everything that needs to be done. I'll see what kind of profits could come from it, what the potential of it is, 
And then at that point, I then find someone to take that over for me. And I go on to the next thing. I, I think I'm also really good at networking and building relationships. So that's something that, um, you know, a lot of people don't have the same advantage that I do. I can go into a place and just the last name, the NFL background, family background, I'm going to meet a lot of people. I'm going to get a lot of opportunities that my sales rep's not going to get because he doesn't have the same last name, same experience that I've had in the past. So um, that's huge. Absolutely huge that that I can do that. And, and I'm pretty much the only one that can do that for the business. So I have to be that person and that's what I should be doing. I still get caught up putting orders in and sending out proofs and stuff like that. And the end of the day, I keep thinking to myself, like, yeah, I have to take that next step. I have to keep delegating if I want to continue to grow. And that's what we're doing. So that's been a big focus on 2022 was really trying to unload all my stuff that I was doing on a daily basis so that I can be you know, the, the face of the company, really make those new connections, make those partnerships, find those new opportunities to grow. That's where we'll come from. I, I do a lot of the product innovation as well. Always looking for new things, new ideas for products to bring in. And they all have to do with what I love doing. And they all have to support living a healthy and active lifestyle. Mm, that's cool. So you're doing primarily business growth, new product development. Do you focus on culture at all with your team? The culture and, and really where it came from um, was really structuring everything to win as a team. It kind of just automatically built the culture once we restructured the way the business uh, goals were set for us. We had an issue for sure where you, know, you, you have a fulfillment team, you have a sales team, you have a marketing team, and you have a point where the sales team has a huge win, a huge order that comes in. And you know, the fulfillment team, it's late on a Friday. They've worked hard all week, and all of a sudden, this massive order comes in. And of course, the sales rep put a rush on it to try to close it. Mm-hmm. And he's all excited about it, but everyone else is pissed. Mm-hmm. And the culture in the place was bad. I never really experienced something like that because I played on sports teams where everyone was trying to win. There's nothing you can really do that would affect the other half of your team to that point where they would be mad at you kind of thing. So uh, didn't realize that there was such an issue there with the culture and the way everything was structured. Again, reached out to my dad and said, dad, you know, how, how do you get over this? You know, these sales reps are obviously commissioned to get as many orders in as possible. They're going to do whatever it takes to close the deal but it's causing a huge issue with the rest of the company. My dad just sat back and he said, yeah, I put this plan in 30 years ago where every single person in the company is somehow incentivized in some way that when one person wins, everybody wins. Hmm. So he's like, you got to find out different ways, no matter who it is, what can you do that when a massive order comes in, you know, thousands of pieces come in, how does at least every, how does every single person somehow win from that? And then the culture will change. So we did that. We found a way to do that. We found a way to incentivize as a team. And now when the big orders come in, everyone's actually hitting up the sales rep saying, man, when's the next one coming? This is awesome. Great work. How'd you land that one? Everything just completely changes. And everyone starts working together too, because then the fulfillment team's reaching out to the sales team saying, hey, that was an awesome order. But if you did it this way, instead with the engraving, we'd actually get it out two, two times faster. Uh, so that you could tell your customers that we can get this out faster if they did it this way instead. Just little things like that, where all of a sudden we were saving a ton of costs. Everyone was working together. Everyone was happy to be there. Everyone was winning together. And that culture was kind of just built on its own by setting up the company the right way. That's beautiful. It sounds like your father's been an integral mentor along the way. How much has that relationship meant to you? Yeah, the funny part is he's, he tried to be for the first three years. And I pretty much listened to nothing that he said. 
You gave so, him the stiff. You gave him the stiff arm. <laughs> yeah, and, and there was times where a lot of it just didn't make sense yet. You know, we he was trying to put in structure where it, it was hard to because it was so early on. You know, we didn't have the data points yet. You know, we didn't really know anything. We were growing so fast with new products and new innovation that it was hard to sit back and say, hey, what's your forecast for this year? How many of these are you going to sell? And like, dad, I have no idea. We just created this product a month ago. I, I, I have no idea how many it's going to sell for the whole year. I don't know if this color is even good. I don't know if we'll sell any of them. And putting different systems in place for inventory and all that super early on was just it wasn't possible at first. You know, we didn't have the money. We didn't have the people. We didn't have the cash flow for it. Some of this stuff at first was just frustrating to hear from them. But at the end, it was 100% right. Yeah, I, it was, I think it was maybe just a, a little bit too early or I just had too much going on that I wasn't actually listening or able to put it in place because it was just absolute mayhem at first. It ended up taking me going back to him about three years later and saying, hey, you know, tell me again about this. You know, How do you do this? And you know, he has over 200 employees. So it was... You know, absolutely remarkable to me once I really started digging into it and trying to grow the team to see that he was able to, to create this amazing business with over 200 employees, mm. you know, with very little help. And he just kind of figured it out over 30 years. At that point, once it kind of hit me, like how impressive it really was, I was reaching out, asking everything I could. And he, and he was helping me with different forecasts, just actual sheets he had set up, different job responsibilities that he had for different people in his company. And it was huge. I mean, you, you don't really get that from anyone else. No one's going to really show you that type of information unless their family are really good friends. So absolutely massive. And, and it really took us um, to a whole different level. You know, I finally put in those forecasts, those budgets, everything that he was telling me to do from day one, uh, <laughs> finally did get put into place, but it took about three years to get there. Well, you probably had a good point that there wasn't enough data to really draw much uh, intelligence out of that just yet. I mean, I think as a budding business, sales was probably needing to be the number one focus. So it sounds like you guys worked together to get to the point where his input could be really more valuable anyway. Absolutely. I, I mean, I wish I had a better game plan early on because there really wasn't one. Yeah. Uh, and I think if we put one in place, it would have helped us get even further faster Sometimes you got to grow a little bit, make some mistakes yeah. uh, before you finally realize what you're doing wrong. Yeah. This is a question that I ask entrepreneurs sometimes. What are three adjectives that you want a customer to use to describe an experience with your business? That's a great question. It's all about the customer. So our first thing for sure, 100% is service. We actually hear this all the time. I got an email this week saying, uh, yeah, I can't believe how fast you turned this around. I was expecting this to be a couple weeks long process that you did in a day. So just taking care of our customers. So the, the service side of it is absolutely huge. There's so many choices. I mean, if you want a bottle, I'm sure you could go find 20 different bottles. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to customize, I'm sure you could find thousands of people that can put a logo on it. You're probably not going to find someone that's going to send you back the proof within 30 minutes and then put your order in and send the invoice over the same day and then actually engrave and ship it within three days. Uh, get it to you within a week. So uh, we realized that really early on, especially because of the engraving business, that if you do it right and you really give your customers attention and the service that they deserve, that they're not even just going to come back. They're also going to tell all their friends to come to you as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so but going back to kind of like the whole patent thing, we didn't need a patent. We just had to do it better than everyone else. And that mm -hmm. was just with my wife's business. Absolutely no patents, nothing different that anyone else could do. We are just doing it better than everyone else is what it came down to. So uh, quality, I think, is huge as well. Um, wife's business, my business, same thing. It has to be really good quality. 
I could have the best service in the world, but if that product shows up and it just sucks, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't matter how great your service was. It has to be a quality product as well. And then, man, last, I think the last thing I like is just is, is passion. I think if you have passion behind what you're doing, what your company stands for, that's a huge game changer. People feel that people see that. And then they want to be a part of it as well. And they want to share your story. That's the three words that I hope stand out for our business. That's awesome. I was going to say too, just watching you and then watching your brothers and Shark Tank and all of that fun seems to come to mind too. I'm sure Gronk Beach is probably going to be leading in that uh, arena on this weekend, but it just seems like you guys are having fun, which is infectious. It is. It's contagious for sure. And and people want to be a part of it every time. It just helps mm-hmm. build community. They want to post about it. They want to show people. They want to tell people. So 100%. And that's sometimes hard to have in business, man. But I think that my kids also bring a lot of that out in me. That's awesome. Last question. What impact do you seek to create in the world? That's a good question. Impact in the world. Man, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think I've really thought of it at that level. For me, it's always... It's one person at a time. Uh, if you can eventually make an impression on a million people, uh, huge. We do have a, a kids Gronk Nation Youth Foundation. Oh, cool! Uh, so we did start that early on in our careers. We've donated millions of dollars to the children's youth hospitals through different youth programs as well. Um, so we are doing as much as we can to impact as many kids as possible. But for me, man, it, it's one kid is all it takes to really make a huge difference, and that's why I love that program. A lot of it we do through health and fitness and sports. I think that's still one of the most powerful tools that you can give our youth as well as to get them out there, get them playing, get them working as a team. I think that's going to help them excel in life. For me, it's if we could really just change one kid's life, that's a lot. And if we can do that multiple times for thousands of kids, that's huge. That's an awesome legacy, an awesome way to make impacts. Chris, this has been an awesome conversation. Have you damaged any Vince Lombardi trophies? In your lifetime? Uh, some fake ones. So a lot of people don't realize that we're now able to buy the fake ones. And this is kind of recent. I think Rob was one of the first ones to actually get the, some of the fake trophies. And I've done a couple workouts with them. And people are like, man, you are crazy. What are you doing <laughs> with those? And they don't realize, like, well, you can't actually touch the real Lombardi trophy okay. unless you're, like, you're at an actual event. So um, the one that Rob damaged was that was that, oh, that was, one was real. That real. was the real one. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He actually, yeah, that was at a, a sanctioned event with the Patriots. Uh, yeah. That one, that one still has a dent in it. They left it. So other ones that you see like floating around at parties or like someone's house that look exactly the same, they're actually just yeah. replicas. That's funny. But yeah. For those that don't know, Rob busted up the Vince Lombardi trophy he was goofing around. <laughs> it's so he funny that they left it. What's that? Yeah. He laid out a bunt. Edelman threw him a, a pitch. And he bunted it and, <laughs> Oh man, it's thirty. So I, I didn't think it would leave that big of a dent, but yeah, that was that was good. Yeah, that was funny. Well, very very good, Chris. Thank you so much. Have a blast in Vegas, and thanks for the inspiration. What you've done, of course, in the NFL um, and now in business has been is a real inspiration to a lot of people who are out there trying to replicate the same thing too. So thanks for your time today and sharing all the stories with us. I really appreciate it. I'll see you in Vegas. Oh yeah, got <laughs> <laughs> your ticket. I'll slip in, man. Hey, careful what you wish for. I might show up. (laughs) We're ready for it. All right. Thanks again. And thank you for the ice shaker. You did turn that around very quickly. So I appreciate that. You put my logo on it and everything. It's very cool. Uh, Not yet, but you proofed it very quickly. And like you said, I'm sure it's probably in the mail. I'll go check my mail as soon as we get off right now because it might be there.
I appreciate it. Good deal. All right. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks, man.